would just go ahead and uh, open up your Bibles to the uh, the book of Second Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under the chairs, and you'll find uh, the book of Second Thessalonians on page 989. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 12. But before we do that, I want to explain to you all why uh, we're in Second Thessalonians when we're kind of in the middle of a series on James. And the reason why is because we've just uh, finished our fourth week of Advent, where we were talking about Jesus as uh, priest, prophet, king, and Messiah. And over the last couple of years, I've noticed something in my own heart, which I imagine uh, is present in at least some of yours as well. And that's that we kind of go through this Advent series and it's, it's really good for me personally and spiritually to kind of take that time to focus more on who Jesus is and what his coming meant for uh, the world, for his creation, for his people, for me personally. And then uh, Christmas comes, I get all these great presents, and uh, then as New Year approaches, instead of thinking about him and who he is and what he's done and what his coming means, I start to think about me and what I want to do differently in the new year. And so this is kind of a post-Advent sermon to uh, cause us to kind of hang on to that, that thoughtfulness, that consideration, that prayerfulness that Advent has kind of fostered in us and keep that going into the new year. And so uh, the reason why we have to do that is because Right, the, the, We celebrate Advent because Christ came into the world. But we're also waiting for Him to come again. And we touched on that throughout the Advent series. But this morning, I want us to read a passage together which kind of highlights both uh, the past, the present, and the future that's coming and how we should live in light of that. So we're going to read verses 3 through 12 of Second Thessalonians. This is Paul uh, writing to this church for the second time. And this is what he says. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank You for these words that 
uh, you sent your Spirit to inspire Paul to write to this church. How we thank you for preserving them so that many, many years later we can read them and benefit from them. We pray that this morning as we look at Paul's description of the way that he gives thanks for and prays for the Thessalonians that uh, you might challenge us to give thanks and pray in this way for one another. We thank you that you sent your Son into the world to redeem it. We thank you that even as, as Paul writes about in this passage that you are patiently waiting for, for His return to send Him back, giving as many as possible the chance to repent. We pray that you would help us to consider your word rightly this morning. Jesus, in your name and, and because of your sacrifice on our behalf that we pray. Amen. So the main point this morning, what uh, it's my hope that, that I get out of this passage and that we get out of this passage is that by God's grace, we would resolve to do good for his glory. And the reason why that is, is because at the beginning of this letter, Paul is writing to this church and he's telling them kind of what God has done among them, what God is going to do among them. And then he tells them what he wants God to do in the present for them. And he uses this phrase that he wants God to fulfill uh, every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And kind of everything else in what Paul is talking about at the beginning of the letter is, is serving to kind of put that point forward. And so as we approach the new year together, that's kind of what I want us to be focused on as a church. That's what I want myself to be focused on as an individual. Not that, you know, resolutions to lose weight or work out or read more books are, are bad things. Those can be good things. God can be glorified in those things. But instead, what I want us to do is to take time, like Paul does for the Thessalonians, and pray for one another and pray for ourselves that God would give us this kind of resolve for good, that he might be glorified in us. And, and we'll see that kind of come out in the text as we go through it. So at the very beginning, verses 3 and 4, what Paul is talking about here is what has happened. And he says that they, the people that he's writing with, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they ought always to give thanks to God for you as is right. So he's saying that they're under an obligation to give thanks. It's kind of this, this inner unction or, or compulsion that they have to express thanksgiving to God on behalf of the Thessalonians. And they, they do this because of two things. First of all, their faith is growing. And second of all, their love is increasing. So the first thing, their faith is growing abundantly. This image, this, this word picture that Paul uses here is one from agriculture. He's, he's describing a, a plant that is overgrown. It's, it's, it's wild, it's unkempt, it's out of control. It's, it's grown way more than it should have grown. And since it's their faith that groans, or that, that grows, notice that Paul gives thanks to God for the Thessalonians. He's not giving thanks to them. Right? They're not responsible for this kind of crazy overgrowth of their faith. He's addressing his thanksgiving to God because he knows that God has given that kind of growth. They're just kind of the recipients of this gift that he's given them. 
So their faith is growing abundantly. And then their love is increasing. And notice here how specific Paul is with his words. Kind of packs all these uh, modifiers into this sentence. Earlier this morning, we were joking out in the lobby because Daniel Miller picked up this, this Hardee's coupon. And uh, in this coupon, there was a, a burger that was described. And it was like new, uh, delicious, hot, wonderful, amazing, spectacular patty melt. So they just had this hamburger and then it had like seven adjectives on there. And all the ones that I named weren't the ones that were on there. You'll have to look at the Hardy's ad to know for sure. I didn't commit it to memory. But in this sentence, Paul is doing a very similar thing, only his is actually to convey meaning, not to sell a sandwich. He says, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So it would be good enough if he could say your love is increasing. For any church, that's a good description. We want to be a church whose love is increasing. Other churches in Hannibal and in the United States and across the world, hopefully, want to be a church whose love is increasing. But it's more than that. The love of every one of you is increasing. So every single person in the church, every member of this body, their love is increasing. No one is left behind. But he goes further. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So every single person in this church has their love for every other single person in this church increased by God. That is a good and glorious thing for which Paul ought to give thanks. This is something that's only coming from him. And Paul is right to give thanks. So right here at the beginning, when we see uh, their faith increasing in this way, in this kind of wild, crazy way, when we see their love for everyone else, of everyone else increasing, we know that this is something that God has done. And, and Paul actually prayed this in 1 Thessalonians. We're not going to go back there, but you could go back and you could read 1 Thessalonians 3, and you'll see Paul pray to God that their faith, that their love would be increased. And he's done it. And now he gives thanks. So our response to this should be one of two things. We should either be individuals and a church who gives thanks to God that our faith is increasing and that our love, our love of every one of us for every other one of us is increasing. Or we should be a church, we should be individuals who ask God to do this for us. And I think that if we would do that, like Paul, if we would bring this request for, before God, that he would increase our love, that he would grow our faith, we would also be the kind of people that have to come back and say we ought to give thanks as is right. Not to each other, not to anyone else, but to God, because he is the only one that can do this among sinful human beings. Paul says, therefore, because of these things, because their, their faith, their love is increasing, he says, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Paul and Silas and Timothy, they travel around and they tell stories about what God is doing among the Thessalonians. About their love, about their faith, about their steadfastness in the face of suffering and persecutions. But everything that they're enduring, that in spite of all of this stuff that's coming against them, they are still people that God is using to increase their faith and increase their love for one another. And in verse 5, he says, this is evidence 
And here it might be confusing because in our Bibles there's a period at the end of verse 4 and then a paragraph break. But the reality is that for Paul, this is still the same sentence. The reason why they break this up is because good style in English doesn't equal good style in Greek. Paul can have a sentence that lasts for three pages. If the ESV Bible did that, we would say this Bible is too hard to read. So they break it up, but, but knowing that it's the same sentence helps us understand what's going on in verse 5. He says, this is evidence. What's evidence? Well, the fact that their faith, their love is increasing, and the fact that they're enduring steadfastly in the face of this affliction and persecution. That's what's evidence. It's evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. What Paul's saying here, he's not saying that, uh, you know, as if there's this some sort of trial that's happening and uh, these people are kind of weighing up evidence for themselves by having their faith increase, by having their love increase, by enduring steadfastly these persecutions. And then God is going to render judgment on the basis of this evidence. Well, you've got enough good things stacked up, so you're not guilty. That's not what's happening here. It's evidence of this judgment that's already happened. They've already been declared right. They've already been justified. God has already changed them and transformed them into new creations. And it's out of that, it's out of that worthiness for His kingdom that they are living in this way. Their love, their faith, their steadfastness, it points to what God has already accomplished on their behalf in Christ. So these are all things that have happened. He's describing their past. Their love has increased. Their faith has increased. They've been enduring. They're demonstrating who they are in Christ. And now he moves to talk about what's happening or what will happen. He says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. So he says, this is what's going to happen. Two things. Number one, God is going to afflict those that afflict them. And number two, he's going to grant rest and relief to them that are afflicted. That's what's going to happen. And in the rest of the passage, all the way down to verse 11, he's telling them when these things will take place. So the first thing here, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. In some ways, what's happening here is, is eye for an eye justice. God promises that for the people that are afflicting His people, that He Himself is going to afflict them. But at the same time, this is far worse than eye for an eye. Right? If you take my eye, and I take yours, we're even. We're both in a lot of pain and wearing patches. But God is capable of afflicting us in a much greater way than we are capable of afflicting anyone else. He tells us that He's going to inflict vengeance in flaming fire on those who do not obey the Gospel, who do not know God. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. This and other descriptions of the punishment that God pours out on His enemies are not something that 
anyone in this life, no matter who they are, no matter how bad they are, are capable of inflicting on another person. Their punishment, their justice that is poured out on them will be worse. I think that that should cause us to do two things. First of all, it should cause us to recognize that uh, whenever we ourselves suffer or whenever we see other people across the world suffering affliction and torment and persecution, that God isn't blind to it. He doesn't fail to see these things. He doesn't fail to remember them. He sees them and his word tells us that he is storing up wrath against them. And I get that that's not something that's popular to talk about. That's what his word says. I think because of that, we get the second thing, and that's that we need to be people who heed Jesus' words to us in the Gospels. To pray for those who persecute us. To pray for those who persecute other people all around the world. Because if we don't pray for them, if God doesn't intervene and save them like he did for Paul, who's writing these words, they're going to get this punishment. And regardless of the way other people treat us, regardless of the way other people treat Christians all around the world, we should be those who care enough about them to overlook the temporary fleeting afflictions that they might put on us or others and ask God to save them from it. Verse 7, he says he's going to grant relief. That's the second thing he's going to do. So Paul is trying to encourage the Thessalonians to hang on to endure, to keep remaining steadfast because rest is coming. There will come a day when they are afflicted no longer. And he tells us when that will be. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. And he goes into this big long description of what that day is going to be like. And we could spend months and years talking about all of these things that Paul talks about, about what the day of the Lord will be like, what his return will be like. But if you know me very well at all, you know that we're not going to. We're going to focus on what matters for us now, not on you know, what might happen at the end. And the reason why is because the Bible is clear on two things about the end with great clarity. The first of those things is that we cannot and will not know the hour of Jesus' return. Jesus doesn't even know himself. He says the Father knows that. So it would be a big fat waste of our time to spend a whole lot of time talking about, well, it might happen on this day or it might happen on this day or these things will happen first or if we just, you know get all this literature in the right order and come up with some sort of chart and then travel around to all these churches and disperse that chart for money, then maybe we'll figure it out. We can't know and we won't know, so let's focus on what matters now, what we can know. The second thing is that that is a day that since it will come unexpectedly, since it will come without warning, we should be people who are watching for it who are hoping and longing and praying for his return. Those are the things that we can know about the end. Everything else is, for the most part, up for debate. And not completely, but mostly with regard to the end times, debate is a waste of time. 
Let's talk about what we can do now. And that's what Paul turns to. He says, to this end, in verse 11, to this end, we always pray for you. He's saying, in light of all of this stuff, in light of your increasing faith, in light of your increasing love, in light of your steadfastness and endurance, because the end is coming, we always pray for you. And he gives the content of this prayer. That our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. That's what he's praying for them. So the first part, we always pray that God may make you worthy of His calling. Notice how similar this is to what he said in verse 5. In verse 5, he says that all these things that they've been doing, it's evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of his kingdom. So he's already acknowledged that God has intervened in their lives in Christ to make them worthy of his calling. And yet he's still praying that God is going to keep doing that. Because he knows that this is something that God has done for them, not something they're doing for themselves. So he prays that God would make them worthy, And then there's this sentence. That God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Here, this whole phrase hinges on the word fulfill. And the reason why it does that is because what the word fulfill means is it's a a completion or a perfection of something that has already been initiated. In order to fulfill something, there has to be something present already. And so while I'm, I'm hesitant to say that God can't do something, I don't think that God can fulfill a resolve for good or a work of faith if there's not something present already. God can create out of nothing, absolutely. But he can't fulfill out of nothing. He fulfills something that's already been initiated in us. So let's figure out what it is that he's fulfilling so we can know whether or not those things are there. There's two things. There's every resolve for good. This word is used, this word resolve is used one other place in the New Testament. It's used in this way in Romans 10.1 where Paul says this, He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's talking about his fellow uh, Israelites, is that they may be saved. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Desire is, is the same word that Paul uses here, and it's translated as resolve. But I think the desire is, is too soft. And the reason why is because what Paul says earlier in Romans. Listen to how he described this, this desire earlier. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing ceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul says in Romans 10.1 that his desire is that his, his brothers, his fellow Israelites, that they would be redeemed, that they would be saved, that they would know the grace of Christ as he does. And clearly from how he describes it earlier in Romans 9, this isn't some 
you know, kind of whimsical thought for him. He's not just saying, you know, I wish I had a cheeseburger right now. One that could be described with many adjectives. He has thought over this. He has prayed over this. This is a firm conviction and commitment in him. He wants them to be redeemed. He has devoted countless hours of his life in ministry and in private prayer towards seeing this thing fulfilled by God. So much so that he can say, I wish that my own salvation was taken from me and given to them. That's what Paul means when he uses this word. So this resolve for good that he is praying that God would fulfill in the Thessalonians, it's not something that's temporary or fleeting or that's easily fulfilled. It's a firm, resolute conviction in them to do what God has called them to do. He wants God to fulfill that and he wants them to fulfill every work of faith by his power. I think these are the really the outworkings of that resolve for good. He wants God to impart in them this desire and then to fulfill this desire and it to result in good works. In Ephesians 2, he says uh, that we might walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. And so when he prays this for them, He recognizes that God has already made them new, that God has increased their faith and increased their love, and now he wants them to bring all, or he wants him to bring all of that to completion. And as I was working on this sermon and just reading through this passage and seeing how Paul prays this way for them, and I'm sure, based on the fact that they have this increasing love for everyone among them, that they would pray in a similar way for one another. Uh, I was reminded of this question that somebody asked me one time. This guy who was a pastor in Houston, he asked me, uh, he said, Dan, if every single lost person that you were praying for got saved, just believed spontaneously, or someone shared the gospel with them and they believed, how many people would enter God's kingdom? And I remember being super convicted by that. And that's, I mean, that was his intention. Right? He wanted to jab me. And he did. Because I recognized that at the time, I wasn't praying for a whole lot of lost people in in faith that God would actually do something. And that question was kind of nagging at me this week as I was thinking about this passage. And I was thinking, what if uh, God answered Paul's prayer for my life? You know, what if he just fulfilled every single resolve for good that's in me? What if he fulfilled every work of faith that I'm a part of? How much different would my life be in 2015 than it was in 2014? How much different would our church be or my family be or our community be? And that kind of thought process, which was equally convicting, led me to two conclusions. First of all, I want to pray to God for myself, for others, for you guys, that he would give me more resolve for good. That he would give me more works of faith. 
that He would increase my love for all of you and my faith in this kind of crazy, overgrown, unkempt way. And then the second thing is that He would fulfill those things. And I want to pray that way for myself. I want to pray that way for you. And I want you to pray that way for me and for one another. And the reason why we do these things, the reason why Paul prays this way is perfectly clear in verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. It's not so that people look at us and say, oh, they're, you know, they're great. It's not so that Paul travels around and says, you know, Believer's Church is a great place with a lot of really good people. So that people see us and then marvel at Him. He is lifted up because of how we live out what He's done for us. And Paul makes this clear at the end. All of these things, this, this prayer, who they are, it is according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Without that, without His sacrifice on our behalf, none of this means anything. The only reason why there can be a work of faith, a resolve for good, anything in us that is good to be fulfilled is because of what He's done for us. And so this morning, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, first of all, I want us to just remind ourselves as individuals of the grace that He's shown us in Christ. And take the Lord's Supper remembering that His body has been broken for us, that His blood has been shed for us. And then after we've done that, uh, I'd like us to gather into small groups and pray this way for one another. To ask God to do this kind of work among us. To increase our love. To increase our faith. To give us this kind of resolve. And then, we're not going to do this now, but uh, later, I would encourage you out on the table... Uh, I printed out copies of, of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he wrote these, these resolutions. And they're insanely intense. Especially when you consider the fact that like the first 33 or so he wrote when he was 19. And I, I would just encourage you to take a copy of that and to read through them and just to think as you approach this new year, what, what would God have you resolve to do? What might He want to accomplish through you uh, now and in this new year as we go into it? So let's pray and then we'll do those two things. Father, we thank You that You have given us faith. And at the same time, we ask You to increase it. To, to grow it. To make us faithful and loving people. We pray that we would be a church where the love of every one of us for one another is increasing. God, we pray that You would give us resolve for good. That we would have firm convictions to do what You've called us to do to live the way You've called us to live and to 
share the gospel with boldness with others. Pray that you would fulfill in us the work that you've begun. And that others might see our good works and give glory to you because of them. We pray now that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that you would just make known to us again in a greater way than before the amazing grace we've been shown in Christ. That we would know that all that we are and all that we have and all that we might one day have and be is because of, is according to the grace that flows from the cross. Pray now that you would help us to worship rightly and to pray for one another rightly.